Welcome to the Shalom Hartman Institute podcast. I'm Alan Abbey. The Hartman Institute is a center of transformative thinking and teaching. We address the major challenges facing the Jewish people and elevate the quality of Jewish life in Israel and around the world. For details on seminars in Israel and North America, go to hartman.org.il. And now, Yehuda Kurtzer, President of Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. His lecture is titled, Peoplehood and the Centrality of Place. I read an article yesterday in the Forward uh, online. This is not going to be a class about gay marriage, but I wanted to make a, uh, an opening observation. Uh, there was an article in the Forward yesterday, I don't know if anybody saw it online, about conservative rabbis in New York feeling stuck about the question of gay marriage. Whereas in, a, the, the, in the public conversation in the New York Jewish community without broading, painting too broad of strokes, uh, the Orthodox community and Orthodox rabbis for the most part were on one side of the issue. Reform rabbis for the most part were on the other side of the issue. And conservative rabbis were being pushed by their congregants and by the public conversation to clarify their stances on what Jewish values have to say about the legality and legitimacy of gay marriage. So again, I'm not going to talk about the merits of that issue, uh, and certainly not about its content, except to reflect that, it, that it, it notes a broader conversation that's actually taking place that underlies that very question. The broad conversation for American Jews in general, for conservative rabbis in this particular place, is to what extent do Jewish values get to shape the public conversation in America? And to what extent do Jewish values get to define for American Jews how they participate in the American public conversation? That, to me, is the Torah question that underlies a news story like that. And I found it particularly interesting because in the context of the news story, uh, when I was sitting here last night in the lecture, I overheard a couple of people say to each other, um, in the reference to one of the things that Danielle said, uh, that they heard the language, they've heard the words big tent in every single session that, <laughs> that you've heard here at the Institute so far. So first of all, I'm getting, it, I'm getting it over with right at the beginning of the session to continue that streak. Um, but the, the phrase big tent is one of those kind of uh, defining peoplehood, uh, peoplehood pieces of terminology. And in the context of this article, it referred to conservative Judaism or conservative rabbis as ostensibly thinking of themselves or in in practical terms, defining the, the biggest tent within the American Jewish community. So in the biggest tent, so to speak, or at least in the communities in America that think of themselves as the big tent, there's this defining question of to what extent do our Jewish values get to determine the, how we exercise Jewish values in the public square? Right? What is the conversation that takes place within the American uh, political scene, and to what extent is that a Jewish conversation? To what extent do Jewish values require us to take particular stances on American political issues? Uh, of course, this also bears reference on some of the things that Danielle talked about last night, right? When we, when we talk about, I, I offered the statistic, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that I'm right, that a, a tiny percentage of American Jews vote on the basis of their Israel politics, that it's actually, it seems in the build-up to an American election that the politics of Israel are extremely important to Jewish voters, but in practical terms, it doesn't, once, you, once Jews enter into the ballot box, they actually vote simil with similar ideologies to, to, 
to every other American. That doesn't mean that American Jews wouldn't self-identify as voting on the basis of Jewish values. I think if you, talk, if you talk to American voters, American Jewish voters, and ask them, do your Jewish values inform how you vote in these elections, the answer would be 100%. The question is, though, which are the Jewish values that we bring to bear in the American public square, in the Canadian public square, and which are the values that we don't? The parallel question to this, of course, is the ways in which, ironically, Israel, as the, as the major peoplehood project of the Jewish people, is increasingly a polarizing issue for diaspora Jews as well. And so we're starting to find this big question, which is what I want to deal with today, and what you'll deal with in the subsequent sessions this morning, is this. How does where we live define who we are? To what extent does place, whether it's the place as defined by the place of the Jewish people here in Israel, or the places where we live outside of Israel, define who we are as Jews? When we talk about the collective, when we talk about the notion of a Jewish people, to what extent are those ideas of a collective, are the ideas of a people, conditional on where those people live and where those communities are situated? And obviously this is a pressing question both for Jews within the land of Israel in this central defining peoplehood project, but very much the same for Jews who live outside the land of Israel. Right, for how we build our communities, how we identify who we are, to what extent, when we live outside the land of Israel, in the various communities in which we live, are we American Jews? Are we Canadian Jews? Are we diaspora Jews? Are we Los Angeles Jews? Are we Seattle Jews? Right? Each of those terminologies has a different resonance about how we imagine what our community is. And both of the opposing experiences of living in the land of Israel or living in diaspora surface different Jewish values into a conversation that defines who we are. That's the question that I want to wrestle with us today. I want to play with um, the basic paradigm uh, for the purposes of today's conversation. And we can dig even to the questions of local versus national. But for the most part, I want to play with the paradigms of the land of Israel as one key conceptual paradigm and diaspora as the second conceptual paradigm. And to do this, I want to draw a critical distinction between the terms of diaspora and exile, because they're essential to what we talk about here. Right? In, in our classical Jewish imagination, there is land and there is diaspora. The difference between diaspora and exile is that exile is a forced condition in which Jews are required to leave the place which they're from, which actually means that exile is a corollary of land. Right? The ideal situation is land, Exile, you see yourself as having been kicked out of a certain land, but you basically want to get back there. The circumstances that diaspora Jews find themselves in today, ever since 1948, is a condition that has appeared two times in Jewish history. Now, for the past 60 years, and previously during the Second Temple period, when Jews actually had and continue to have the option of living in land and under sovereignty, and have nevertheless created the elective condition of living outside the land of Israel in this condition known as diaspora. It's very, very difficult for most Jews, especially liberal Jews, to imagine that the world in which we live in, that the reason you live in Newton, Massachusetts, is because you are in exile. Right? The, the, the very experience of sitting here in the Hartman Institute right now disproves that whole idea. You can, for you know, $1,500, you can get on a plane. Right? If you declare your citizenship at the airport, you're immediately a citizen of the state of Israel. The idea that you would actually imagine yourself as living in an exilic condition, even though that still is the liturgy that you're going to say in shul 
whether in Newton, Massachusetts, or here in Jerusalem tomorrow, right? Even in spite of that liturgy, it's very difficult to imagine an exilic condition. And instead, we find ourselves in this unusual diaspora condition, which again is a product really of the last 60 years, but has its precedent in the moment in time in the Second Temple period when Jews came up with the very term diaspora, a Greek word which means literally the scattering of seeds. Now, scattering of seeds in the New Testament is meant to be something of a curse, because scat seeds are scattered, according to Jesus, on the stones, and therefore they can't grow. But the more optimistic way to understand why Jews thought of themselves in diaspora is when you scatter seeds, you allow for the possibility of things growing in many more places than if you put them all in one basket. Right? When you scatter your seeds across, whether it's the Roman Empire, whether it's the known world, whether it's Europe, the United States, Canada, and all the places that Jews have spread to, what you're basically saying is, look how widely we can flower. That is the experience of Jewish diaspora. In the Second Temple period, in the Roman Empire, Jews reached every single point where the Roman army reached. Jews went to Egypt in the Second Temple period, not because they were forced to be in Egypt, because they were mercenaries who joined the Egyptian army. Right? This is, there's a resonance in the Second Temple period to the experience that we live today. Why do Jews live in every place imaginable in the United States? It's not ideological. Right? Jews imagine themselves as Americans. And so Americans live in Sioux City. Jews live in Sioux City. So these radically different experiences of how we understand place are defining, are teasing out for us different Jewish ethical understandings of who we are. Right? The very experience of living in the land of Israel creates totally different ethical opportunities than what we imagine uh, for diaspora Jews and spreading where they are. So I want to spend time today mapping out these two paradigms. What is the experience of land? What does it bring for Jewish collectivity? What is the Jewish peoplehood experience as imagined in living in one place within the land of Israel? in the building of a public society, in being able to use Jewish values to map them on the public square, and what Jewish values are brought to bear in the experience of living deliberately, by choice, outside the land of Israel. How do we imagine what it is to be an organized community outside the land of Israel? What is a Jewish collective outside the land of Israel? Do we, are we stuck with the model that the Jewish people is here, and when we're outside the land of Israel, we're not the people? Could we find a paradigm that helps us understand what it means to be a people outside the land of Israel that doesn't oppose the idea of what it means to be a people within the land of Israel? That's the, those are the conceptual categories with which I want to work today. And in a lot of ways, these build actually very productively on the opening categories with which Daniel started us yesterday, right? The, the Genesis Jew and the Exodus Jew. The Genesis Jew, Abraham, for who is promised that you're going to have a great, you're going to build a family, and that family is going to people, become a people. I will make you into a great nation. The Abrahamic story, the Genesis story, what it means to be a Genesis Jew, all of those promises that go to Abraham, to Isaac, and then Jacob that get repeated are made conditional. The gift of that promise is not just that you're going to be a great people, but that you're going to go and do it in a particular place. It's not coincidental that the Abraham story starts with Lech Lecha, go. I need you to build this family in one particular place. The whole notion of the Genesis Jew 
is that the covenant is not just to a people and to a family, to an ethnic group, but it's a, to a people, a family, and an ethnic group tied to Eretz Canaan and ultimately to Eretz Israel. Those two things travel together in the biblical narrative. In contrast, in the Exodus model, right, the paradigmatic Exodus Jew is Moses, who goes up and receives the Torah. Now Moses has his own lech lecha. Moses has his own moment of saying, I want to take these people forth and go out. But what's the going out in the Exodus story? It's not to Eretz Canaan. Where is it to? The desert. In fact, before Pharaoh really starts resisting and pushing back, and before you start getting a sense in the Exodus story that they're going to leave permanently, the original request that Moses makes of Pharaoh is, let me take my people out to worship God. You could even imagine, right, if you don't know the end of the story, that Moses is saying to, to Pharaoh, let me take my people out to worship God, because I can't do it here in, in you know, Cairo or Alexandria. Let me take them out of Egypt. Let's worship God, and then we'll come back. There's no conditionality for the Exodus Jew of actually worshiping God and receiving the Torah in place. And to this end, the rabbis actually have a whole series of midrashim on the importance of receiving Torah in the desert. Right, the perfect, perfect Exodus experience, in contrast to the perfect Genesis experience, the perfect Exodus experience is out of place. Torah is perfect in the desert. Right? How, uh, this is, uh, I, you know, um, when I was studying yeshiva many years ago, right, uh, and I studied in yeshiva here in Israel, in Alon Shvut, in Gush Etzion, and the yeshiva is perched on top of a mountain. The yeshiva loved that. It was a perfect metaphor for them. Right? You go up to the mountain, you receive the Torah, and that's the perfect place to receive the Torah is up on a mountain, far away from the challenges of everyday life. Right? Literally and metaphorically removed, elevated, and above those challenges. The perfect Exodus Jew, in this imagination, and the way that the Torah actually tells its story, is up on the mountain of Sinai, in the middle of the desert, unencumbered by the actual challenges of living it out. So you have this incredible binary. The Genesis Jew is not just a model of family and ethnicity. And the Exodus Jew is not just a model of uh, Torah and meaning. But those Genesis Jews and Exodus Jews actually map perfectly on this other binary with which we want to talk about today. Being in place and being, quote unquote, out of place. So this is where I want to dig us a little further today. And we know the contemporary resonances with which we're wrestling as a Jewish community. Right, the ways in which a conversation about what it means to build a Jewish society in Israel is so challenging, both for Jews who live in place, as well as for Jews who live, quote-unquote, out of place. Right? How we talk about Jewish values in the public square is a radically different conversation for Jews living in diaspora as it is for Jews living in the land of Israel. And we'll return to that, and we can talk about it in the context especially of questions and answers at the end. How do we bring both of these values to bear on the diaspora Jewish conversation as well as on the Israel Jewish conversation in ways that have integrity to the fact that living in diaspora and living in Israel are radically different Jewish experiences? Um, what I don't want to do, and now I'll ask you to open up your sources, um, we're, the, uh, we're the purple today. What I don't want to do in talking about Israel and diaspora is two kind of classic mistakes 
in whenever we think about land and diaspora or Israel and diaspora. One of these classic mistakes is to put these two together as two possible realities that actually don't have a lot of bearing on one another. Right? The ways in which the, you know, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Right? To pretend that these categories, land and diaspora, are, don't actually challenge each other, right? don't provoke each other, that they just go their own separate ways. And to, to explore this classic mistake, which we won't spend a lot of time on, I just want to look at this brief text. Um, it's a modern text. It's an academic text written by a professor at the UW, University of Washington in Seattle, uh, Noam Pianko in referring to a moment critical in the early founding of the State of Israel in the 1950s, uh, in a dialogue between, a public dialogue that took place between Prime Minister Ben-Gurion and Jacob Blaustein. Once upon a time, or so I'm told, uh, the American Jewish community essentially had its own political leadership, which was defined by the American Jewish Committee. Uh, and Jacob Blaustein, as the head of the American Jewish Committee, served as the putative and I think not just in his own mind, and not just in the mind of the American Jewish community, um, but the putative leader of American Judaism in a way that would be very, very difficult to imagine for the American Jewish community today. And there emerged a public debate uh, between Blaustein and Ben-Gurion in the early days of the State of Israel that Noam Pianko talks about here today. In fact, in 1950, two Israeli and American Jewish leaders, Ben-Gurion and Jacob Blaustein, made an agreement to disagree on the meaning of Judaism and Zionism. Ben-Gurion promised to mitigate his rhetoric of Aliyah and the negation of the exile in exchange for the support of the American Jewish community. Given the historical circumstances, the decision to suppress prickly differences made sense at the time. After decades of tremendous dislocation, demographic transformation of the global Jewish community, and unprecedented persecution, both Jewish communities had a vested interest in focusing on bolstering their own situations rather than debating their ideological and practical differences. In other words, what had happened? Ben-Gurion had very publicly stated that the key next step for the American Jewish community was to do what? Make Aliyah. Blaustein said publicly to Ben-Gurion, and this is, it's very, very difficult to imagine an American Jewish leader saying this to the Israeli Prime Minister today, you don't get to lecture my people and tell them what to do. And not only that, you're going to undermine my community by telling people to make Aliyah. In fact, I can fast forward 50 years later, uh, a couple of years ago, I went to the President's Conference, which took place here in Jerusalem just a, just a week and a half ago. This is the first President's Conference in 2008. And there was a panel on the future of the Jewish people. And there were probably nine people on the panel. I think seven of them were Israelis, two of them were American. One of them was the head of a major uh, American Jewish federation. And the first handful of people kept talking on the importance of Aliyah. Aliyah, Aliyah, Aliyah. And then it came to this uh, head of uh, one of the major federations in North America. And I'm sitting there saying, okay, now he's going to talk about what else can we do right, for the future of uh, the survival of American Jewry. And he said, to the astonishment of the whole room, I think the key thing that we as an American Jewish community have to invest in for the future of the American Jewish community is Aliyah. It was astonishing. And you could actually see other Federation heads in the room like their jaws dropped in hearing this. Right? Extraordinary moment and the total reversal of the Ben-Gurion-Blaustein moment, right? So at one point in time, one model of thinking about how Israeli and American Jews talk to each other is essentially a mutual recognition, like Ben-Gurion and Blaustein. For as much as I like the Ben-Gurion-Blaustein moment of the, I get to speak for American Jewry and you get to speak to Israeli Jewry, what Noam is reflecting on in this little moment here is saying that we risk 
the possibility of saying, when that happens, we also risk the possibility that these communities look at each other and say, I don't have much to say to you and you don't have much to say to me. And in fact, when we go back to Abraham, there's precedent for this. When Abraham and Lot come together to the land of Israel, they realize they can't coexist. And so Abraham says to Lot, you go your way, I'll go my way. There's plenty of, there's plenty of territory for us to split up. Right? Lot goes across the Jordan River. Abraham stays within the land of Israel. Would that it have been different. <laughs> Israel would have different water challenges. Right? But in the mythic imagination, there is a possibility that when we talk about Israel and diaspora, we just talk about going our own separate ways. I want to leave that aside for today right? and not use that as our key moment and actually try to push towards how do we understand Israel and diaspora as ethically complementary and not just as ethical departures from one another. But the other mistake I want to I just surface and then try to move past, and this is the usual mistake what happens when we talk about Israel and diaspora, is the notion that one of them is fundamentally hierarchically superior to the other. Usually, <laughs> right, hierarchical superiority is where? In Israel, right? Of course, although increasingly in the American Jewish community, the new diasporic movement is trying to make the claim, and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this again, that somehow the experience of diaspora is more authentic to Jewish life than the experience of sovereignty. I'll have more to say about that in a second. But the, the classic exemplar of an individual who models this notion of hierarchical superior to living in land as opposed to living in diaspora is the Israeli writer Aleph Bet Yehoshua. Um, as expressed most powerfully in the text that I've brought here. Aleph Bet Yoshua, for all of his successful writing, and he's an extraordinary writer, um, has made a, a cottage industry out of annoying American Jews, um, <laughs> usually with this platform. And the text that I've actually brought here today, this excerpt on how it is that he really gets to the heart of this issue, is actually, it's really important to note, his apology of when he actually really drove this drove a bunch of people crazy. He gave this, this amazing speech, I believe it was at the American Jewish Committee. He gave right, the 100th anniversary of the American Jewish Committee. I mean, come full circle from Jacob Blaustein. I probably in the Jacob Blaustein building, which is the headquarters of the American Jewish Committee in New York, um, in which he gave a, a, a completely alienating talk to American Jews about the fundamental inferiority of what it means to live in diaspora. The result of which was they convened a symposium to deal with Aleph Bet Yoshua's comments. I mean, it's, it's like this weird act of self-hatred to continue to bring the same speaker to make the same points. It's like a really interesting phenomenon. Um, but they convened a whole symposium to unpack Aleph Bet Yoshua's comments, and he was the keynote speaker, and this was the content of his apology. It was a little, yeah, but it was a debate, right. Um, Aleph Bet Yoshua, the meaning of homeland. What, what I sought to explain to my American hosts, in overly blunt and harsh language, perhaps, that's the whole apology right there. <laughs> the whole apology is, I spoke too clearly. <laughs> right? um, is that for me, Jewish values are not located in a fancy spice box that is only open to release its pleasing fragrance on Shabbat and holidays, but in the daily reality of dozens of problems through which Jewish values are shaped and defined for better or worse. A religious Jew also deals with a depth and breadth of life, life issues that is incomparably larger and more substantial than those with which his religious counterpart in New York or Antwerp must content. Diaspora Jewry is 
the spice box that you open up on at the end of Shabbat. Right? That is what it means to be diasporically Jewish, is to have these kind of little playful rituals right, that are of themselves non-substantive. Right? In contrast, the religious Jew in New York, as opposed to a religious Jew in Jerusalem, are dealing with a widely different uh, set of religious circumstances. Am I denouncing their complete, incomplete identity? Parentheses, yes. Um, I am neither denouncing nor praising. It's just a fact that requires no legitimating from me, just as my identity requires no legitimating from them. But since we see ourselves as belonging to one people, and since the two identities are interconnected and flow into one another, the relation between them must be well clarified. As long as it is clear to us that Israeli Jewish identity deals, for better or worse, with the full spectrum of the reality, and that diaspora Jewry deals only with parts of it, then at least the difference between whole and part is acknowledged. It's, a really, it's an extraordinary text, really an extraordinary text. But the moment that Jews insist that involvement in the study and interpretation of texts or in the organized activity of Jewish institutions are equal to the totality of the social, political, and economic reality that we in Israel are contending with, not only does the moral significance of the historic Jewish grappling with a total reality lose its validity, there is also the easy and convenient option of a constant flow from the whole to the partial. Right? Israeli Jewish identity is whole. Diasporic Jewish identity is not just partial, right? it's in inconsequentially partial. The things that American Jews do are, are these little behaviors Right? that have no map on reality of the totality of the reality with which the Israeli Jewry must grapple. This is actually, I think, a surprisingly common Jewish position that is articulated largely by Israeli Jews, in many circumstances by American Jews as well. Right? And the reverse is equally problematic. The reverse is most powerfully articulated by the literary critic George Steiner, uh, who's, who's a uh, key metaphor for this was in, expressed in an essay which he calls Our Homeland, the Text. And Steiner's argument was the, the, the experience of Jewish sovereignty and land has been so inconsequential in Jewish history that Jews have shifted what land means or what homeland means to the text rather than the experience of land. It's radical diasporism that opposes very dramatically the radical landism as expressed by Aleph Bet Yoshua. Right? In both of those models, there's an attempt to say there is an authentic Jewish experience, the other one of which is a kind of, is a, is a, um, is a meaningless betrayal of. Right? For Yehoshua, the experience of living in land, in sovereignty, and building a Jewish society is authentic. It requires us to grapple with all of the questions of the day through a Jewish lens, and we'll talk about what that means in, in following. And what you diaspora Jews do by opening up your spice boxes, by going to your silly institutions, right? Those are partial experiences of Jewishness that betray the real experience of living within one society. For Steiner, it's equally problematic and equally uh, hierarchical. The real experience for Jewish life is text. Why? How, how many years in total, in the past 2,500 years, have Jews lived under sovereignty after all? Right? There's the 60 years since 1948. And there's approximately the 60 years, maybe 90 years, between the time that the Hasmoneans defeat the Greeks in the Hanukkah story and the time that that Jewish society falls apart when the Romans march into Jerusalem. 
And that's a probably about another 100 years. So over the past 2,500 years, since the Davidic kings, Jews have lived under their own sovereignty within the land of Israel for a total of about 160 troubling years, many of which were extremely fraught with difficulty, in which there was anxiety about whether the thing was going to make it, both then and now. Right? So how can you actually say, in, a, in the view of a George Steiner, that the experience of living in land and under sovereignty is an authentic Jewish experience? It took longer to write the Babylonian Talmud. It took more years to produce the Babylonian Talmud than it did for Jews living under sovereignty in the totality of its existence. So where's our real homeland? Our homeland is in the institutions that are born out of the diaspora. The text, right? Perhaps by extension you would say the synagogue, right? By extension you would say radical Jewish ethnic behavior that runs the gamut of everywhere that Jews have wound up living. Right? That's Jewish authentic experience. This land stuff, Right, trying to take Jewish values and actually map it on a lived society, that's an inferior, bastardized version of all the creativity that we've been able to produce in diaspora. So there's a potential, and this is actually where the conversation between American diaspora Jews becomes, it goes most commonly and yet is most poisonous, is to assume that there is a hierarchical relationship between these two choices and that the other is an inferior version. Right? So both to Aleph Bet Yoshua and to George Steiner, as long as we acknowledge that one of these is better than the other, we can have a real conversation. In fact, even in the context of, research, of, of a, a research project I did here at the Institute, and Tal actually made reference to this on the opening night. It was kind of a throwaway line, but it's something that stuck with me. We were talking about in context of the Engaging Israel project, and one of my colleagues on the project said something to the effect of, wait, he said to me, you acknowledge, you know, I live in New York. Um, you acknowledge, he said to me, that fundamentally, this here in Israel is the game that's being played on the field. And you diaspora Jews are in the stands. He said, you acknowledge that, right? You get that that's where the whole thing is really being played out for Jewish life. Right? That's the perfect hierarchical model here. Right? This is the game, and you are the fans. And that's problematic not just for the reasons I've articulated so far, which is why do we have to be stuck in this hierarchical mode, but it's also a bad long-term strategy. If you want to paint the real story as taking place here on the field, and you guys are the fans, well, fans have options, <laughs> right? Fans buy the tickets, right? Fans can leave, fans can boo, right? Fans get rowdy. Right? Even in the metaphor itself, for the people who want to own the metaphor of the superiority of one of these experiences over the other, it's not a, it's not, it doesn't portend a good long-term strategy for actually building a relationship between these two communities. And if we take for granted, as I think we must, that di the diasporic Jewish experience is here to stay, in other words, unless if we, if we leave behind the messianic possibility that one day everybody's just going to rally around one shared vision in one central place, if we assume that since most of you aren't moving here, that you've essentially validated the, the diasporic experience for yourself, for your children, for your grandchildren, and so right? And we assume, as I think we can, that the experience of living within sovereignty and land is here to stay, is creating all sorts of new possibilities for Jewishness, how do we hold on to these two possibilities as in some ways mutually reinforcing? And what do each bring forward as ethical possibilities for Jewishness and the collective in their own different experiences? 
And the model that I want to use to think about is the third text on your opening page, which is an extraordinary text that comes from this previous time in Jewish history in which we wrestled with this question, which is during the Second Temple period, and written by an extraordinary diaspora Jew, Philo of Alexandria. Philo of Alexandria, for all of his merits, right, is this extraordinary diasporic Jew living in Alexandria who writes a 25-volume commentary on the Torah, integrating the Torah into the philosophical wisdom of the Greek world in which he lives, and has no shame, I say this positively, <laughs> has no shame about the fact that he can't read the Torah in the original Hebrew. Right? He's a Greek-speaking, literate Greek writer, proudly Jewish, extremely recognizable to modern Jews, right? as this learned thinker who's actually also a civic leader within the Alexandrian community, independent of the Jewish community, and sets forward to integrate beautifully the Greek philosophical tradition with the works of the Hebrew Bible. And how does he refer to where he lives and to the land of Israel? And now, the temp remember, the temple is still standing. Jews, less than a couple of days away, Jews are living, not necessarily under sovereignty, but with a temple still there. There's a Jewish society within the land of Israel, and he is electively living in Alexandria and building a different kind of Jewish society. And how does he say it? For no one country can contain the whole Jewish nation. Right? Think how beautiful that is, right? This flip on the Jewish self-identification as being a, a tiny minority of the world. Philo, in the same reality, says, we're just, there's, there's no town that's big enough for all of us, right? This is just a basic problem of numbers. No one country could contain the whole Jewish nation by reason of its populousness. Gutetzaris, as they say. On which account they have frequent all the most prosperous and fertile countries of Europe and Asia, whether islands or continents. Now, here's the key point. Looking indeed upon the holy city as their metropolis, on which is erected the sacred temple of the Most High God, but accounting those regions which have been occupied by their fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers and still more remote ancestors in which they have been born and brought up as their country. You might have to break it apart into a few sentences, right? What's the distinction here? One is our, which one is our ancestral land? Right? The ancestral land, the one occupied by our fathers, grandfathers, remote ancestors, where we've been born and brought up, that's our country. That's Alexandria. What's the other one? The metropolis. And this is not the metropolis in the Superman sense. This is metropolis in the, in the Greek origin of the word metropolis is mother city. Think of this as the mother city and the fatherland. <laughs> Right? Here is my ancestral, my ancestral place is the United States. This is true for me. All of my grandparents were born in the United States. My grandfather got a purple heart fighting for the U.S. Army in Europe in World War II. Right? I'm, I'm a proud kid of a government family. Right? I'm an American. That's my country. And yet this is my metropolis. This is my mother city. What is this, what Philo is setting forward is the possibility of holding together in a binary this possibility of identifying with two different lands, with land and diaspora as in some ways completely different and yet mutually reinforcing. It's an extraordinary moment for Second Temple Jewry for, for this, a paradigm that is not in sufficient currency in our contemporary Jewish community 
and yet opens up the possibility for something that perhaps um, I hope we can try to hold on to for today. What would it look like for us to imagine what does diaspora bring forth in terms of Jewish ethics and Jewish values for the communities, the societies we want to build? Something that would be perhaps, just perhaps, a little bit more elaborate and complex than a spice box, right? And what, at the same time, are we allowed to say as diaspora Jews about the experience of land and sovereignty that would also have its richness and complexity and authenticity to Jewish values? Could we hold these two things together? Not in a kind of cognitive dissonance, where we know at the end of the day that one of these is better than the other, but in an awareness and a kind of a recognition that they both surface Jewish values and Jewish ethics in a way that can be mutually reinforcing. And by the end of this, I'd like to then think of the ways in which these challenge each other and perhaps find ways that they reinforce each other. Before I jump into the text, let me just take a pause and see if there are any questions. I'm sure, you could find, I'm sure you can find data about how many American Jews travel to Israel. I'm sure you could find data about the different ways in which American Jews express their kind of patriotism to the metropolis. It's very hard, in general, to find data about ideology. And part of what we're trying to do is to build this different kind of, again, build a different kind of Jewish conversation. What if we as a community started to talk in different ways about how we relate to or orient ourselves towards the places in which we live at the same time as the places to which we feel some sense of affinity. I think, actually, just parenthetically, as important as it is for diaspora Jews to imagine Israel in some sense differently, as important even if it's not their homeland, it's also important, and we'll see this in following, how do diaspora Jews see their own places in which they live? Right? How do we create positive framing and language around the places that we live that don't come at the expense of, the, of, of Israel? Because I find a lot of American diaspora Jews have a fundamentally, they don't really care about the places that they live ideologically. Because they recognize that it's in some way inferior. And I think it's a challenge for us to think about how do you build up the, the mythic place of here for diaspora Jews as much as the mythic place of home for diaspora. You know, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. There's a long history of Jews coming to the land of Israel whenever they've wanted to. Um, but I am focusing on the moments in, in Jewish time it's particularly 1948 to the present, when those are omnipresent realities. In other words, I, I, I'll grant you, at least for the purpose of the discussion, that in some ways this is a new question for Jews. Right? And precisely because it's a new question, how are we going to actually deal with it? Right? How do we deal with this, this, if I can come to Israel for a bar mitzvah, is, it, is Israel basically the banquet hall for American Jews? Right? <laughs> What does, it actually, what does it actually mean to come here and do those things, right? And it, it, it's a question for almost, for so many of the features of how American Jews use Israel as a laboratory, birthright Israel, as a laboratory of Jewish identity. It's actually a really complicated ethical question for American Jews to think about. What is it that we're trying to do by making our kids like Judaism more and Jews more by putting them on a bus around Israel for 10 days? And the reciprocal is also true. If Israel is our laboratory for Jewish identity, the place where we experiment with what it means to be meaningfully Jewish, what are we saying about our own places and our hometowns? Why is birthright Israel the way in which we do Jewish, meaning, Jewish meaningful education identity for our kids, which we can't do in birthright America? If we don't actually think seriously about the ethics of what we tease out, how are we actually going to, how's this thing going to work? Right, and I guess you could, you could approach that 
the, the, the question was, is there a third possibility, which is the Israel of the metaphor as opposed to the Israel of the real? The, in our current conversation, people who will talk about notion of our homeland, the text, are doing exactly that. Right? Israel is merely a metaphor for which the real Israel is a perversion. Right? The land of Israel, once you make, that's actually, and it's most powerfully articulated by the Haredi anti-Zionist position. Right? Your, your perverse state is a, is, a, um, is a disgrace to the notion of what Israel was supposed to be. Right? So what would it look like to bring that metaphor out of that place and, and somewhere that doesn't have to come at the cost of appreciating what actually the real state is? In other words, that's a, the, kind of the biggest Jewish ethical challenge of all time, which is how do you bridge the ideal with the real? Right? I, ethics are our articulation of, of our values right, in contemporary realities, and then we try to live up to them. So that's, that's a big question that I think runs through all of this. What I'd like to do is to paint two different pictures right, of two, kind of, two ethical paradigms of what it is to live, to think about peoplehood in place. One is essentially a, a fundamentally diasporic model, and that is, uh, I was asked to promote the synagogue, um, so the model is here, uh, the synagogue. I, I was asked after I actually prepared the class, just so everybody knows. Um, one, the diasporic model of thinking about what collectivity and peoplehood means, and that is the synagogue model. And the other model of what collectivity means, or what ethics it brings to the surface, which is the public square model. Let's spend a little bit of time on the synagogue model. The synagogue is actually a great term to use in talking about the experience of the Jewish collective in diaspora, in part because it, the synagogue itself is a diasporic word. It's a Greek word around which the word Beit Knesset is a Hebrew translation of a Greek word. The synagogue is an institution born in diaspora. It means a gathering place for people, a place where people come together. Right? An organization, a not necessarily a building, but an institution that brings people together, that takes for granted a certain sense of membership and belonging to a shared cause or shared purpose. One of the great mysteries in ancient Jewish history is that we know of the existence of synagogues long before we know of the existence of liturgy. In other words, we know that Jews were gathering in synagogues long before we know what they were doing there. The only thing we know that goes back a really long time is the Torah reading. Right? That seems to have been something that all of our ancient evidence suggests that Jews have been doing together for a long time. Getting together and reading the book. Whether it was a Torah discussion, whether it was an annual cycle or triennial cycle, these are actually meaningful historical questions. But we know that Jews got together, gathered in certain places, read the Torah, and we don't know what else happened. Over time, synagogues became exclusively, almost exclusively theological. They became about prayer, right? They became about ritual and liturgy. But at its core, the basic diasporic institution that I want to think about is what is it for Jews to come together in a concentrated place as opposed to the public square? That is the diasporic model that I want to play with today. Gathering together for a purpose in essence, because the public square is fundamentally not Jewish. What do we do when we go to synagogue? We consecrate a Jewish space in the context of a place that is otherwise not Jewish. That is essentially the diasporic idea. Right? How do you create Jewish collectivity? How do you create peoplehood? You create institutions of gathering together of Jews for common purposes. 
So for the, for the purposes of our discussion here, we're starting with the notion of synagogue, but I don't think we have to stay with the theological institution of the synagogue as the, as the ultimate embodiment of this. A JCC is a synagogue, right? A Jewish, an, an agency in which Jews come together for a common purpose, as opposed to making Jewishness the work of the street, is a synagogue. It's people coming together for that commonality of purpose. And we can explore, actually, as we go on, attempts by Jews, especially in the last generation, to start thinking about what happens when we take our Jewish values into the public square in diaspora. Chabad is the best example of that, and we'll come back to that in following. But the core diasporic idea, the core ethical model for living within a diaspora context is to create an institution whereby Jews come together in search of common purpose. The core text that underlies this mythically comes from the book of Ezekiel. It's actually an extraordinary little text. Uh, right around the verge of the creation of, of the first exile, which creates the first diaspora, of the Jews leaving the land of Israel and going to Babylonia. And Ezekiel the prophet says as follows. Um, doo -doo -doo. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your next of kin in the entire house of Israel, are they to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, get you far from the Lord, to us is this land of possession. Right? Those people have taken it over, and they've said to you, all of your family, get out. Right? You need to go to a different place, because this is no longer your place. And what happens in that different place? In the very kind of mythic core of what it means to leave Jerusalem and go to somewhere else, Ezekiel has this incredible comment. Therefore say, thus said the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the nations, and although I have scattered them among the countries, I have been to them a little sanctuary in the countries where they have come. Although I have cast them far off among the nations, right? Although I've sent you to everywhere, to Poughkeepsie even, right? I've sent you far off among the nations, and although I've scattered you among the countries, right? This, we recognize this as the diasporic Jewish experience, the the, the, the total scattering in all these different places, what does God become in the context of that scattering? I have been to them a little sanctuary in the countries where they have come. I have been for you, or I will be for you, a mikdash ma'at, a miniaturized version of the mikdash, of the temple of the sanctuary. Anybody recognize this phrase, mikdash ma'at? What is this phrase usually used in reference to? Dinner table? Right. The core idea is the synagogue. The core idea, mikdash me'at, is commonly used to refer to a synagogue. That the, 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 temp, the temple gets played out in the little temples that we create. Most radically, in the reform movement, right, the reform movement shifted from talking about synagogues by taking asset to temples, right, to actually pick up on this exact metaphor. What do we do to capture the experience of the temple in Jerusalem when we live in Toronto or in San Francisco? We create our own temples. We don't need the temple in Jerusalem if we have the temple in San Francisco. But the core idea, before Jews actually made institutions to replicate, whether it's the dinner table or whether it's the synagogue, before Jews actually made those institutions to capture little templeness, the core theological idea is that God is actually the Mikdash Ma'at. God is the little sanctuary. This is actually radical diasporism. If I leave the temple in Jerusalem, 
I leave this notion that place is embodied with actually having a physical place where Jews go, where we bring sacrifices, where we make a pilgrimage, and now I'm banished from that place. How do I stay connected to Jewishness? I have God in my heart. Right? As long as God is the embodiment, I'm going to spend a little time on this and I'll take some questions. As long as I have God, as long as I believe in God, as long as I hold on to God, I've retained some sort of um, mythical relationship to place. This is a radically diasporic idea, right? As if to say, the Jew within is the paradigm that comes out of diaspora, that comes out of exile, right? Destruction happens, the actual place gets obliterated, and now what you do is carry God along with you. And then the second move is extremely important. Jews then said, it's not enough for us to simply carry around God in our hearts. We need to actually make little temples. Let's actually use this text as a core idea and translate it into the little institutions that we use to replicate the big institution. We can't go back to the temple in Jerusalem, but we can create the temples within the context of our hometown. So one idea that Jews used in thinking about their diasporic experience is how do we bottle God into our little institutions so that even though it's not, we know that it's mi'at, it's little, it's a smaller version. We know we're not actually building the temple, but we're creating sub-institutions in our communities to be able to bottle God and to keep ourselves close to the core mission of what it is that we're supposed to do. A second translation of this idea happens in the Babylonian Talmud in Brachot. And I want you to just read in the middle. Um, third line in, uh, second, li second word from the end of the line. This conforms with the following saying of Rabbi Chia Barami in the name of Ula. Since the day that the temple was destroyed, <clears throat> the Holy Blessed One said, it has nothing in this world except for the four cubits of halacha alone. Right? Once upon a time, God had a house. Right? In, in biblical literature, the temple is referred to as God's footstool. Right? That's the place that Deuteronomy says, you're going gonna, to go to a land that I tell you to go to, I'm going to designate you a place, and once you found that place, you're going to worship God, you're going to bring sacrifices, right? God's presence is going to dwell within the context of a holy temple in a particular place. And now that place gets destroyed. So it's a good theological question. If God's house gets destroyed, where does God go? Right? So in the first text, in Ezekiel, God goes into people. Right? I will be, God becomes like a little sanctuary in these places, and we build institutions for them. A second model, as played out in Brachot, is where does God go in that moment of destruction? Into human behavior. The four cubits of halacha. Now, first of all, I don't know what a cubit is, but I don't really know what four cubits of halacha actually means. The word halacha, right, meaning Jewish law or Jewish practice, is also an intransitive verb, meaning walking, right? The walking, halacha. One way to translate halacha is the walking. So there's, a, there's interesting possibilities of what we mean when we talk about God being found in the practice of Jewish law, especially when we use this metaphor of walking. There's a suggestion here, like a hint of, and I don't know if, I'm, if it's right, but there's a hint of, wherever we walk, God essentially walks with us. Right? When you use this metaphor of walking, of Jewish law as, as defining the parameters of, of human behavior, you allow for the possibility of movement. And if anything, the world of halacha has been defined by movement. Right? Halachic Judaism is not the same today as it was 1,500 years ago. So Jews have moved, and they have essentially carried God with them in their walking. 
to go on in the Gemara. So said also Abaye, at first I used to study in my house and pray in the synagogue. Since I heard the saying of Rabbi Chia Barami in the name of Ula, since the day that the temple was destroyed, the Holy One, blessed be he, has nothing in this world but the four cubits of halacha alone, I pray only in the place where I study. Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi, though they had 13 synagogues in Tiberias, prayed only between the pillars where they used to study. The intellectual elites would, would pray only in their study house. Contrary to the Hartman Beit Midrash, right? They actually would create their community among learning and Jewish practice. Now this is in some ways an anti-synagogue text, right? But it's the same premise of synagogue, right? Find the intellectual climate of the Jewishness that you inhabit, right? Find the, find the world of Jewish practice and Jewish law, of Torah study, and build your world around it. That's why I love this idea of, they, of, of even the visual of praying between the pillars. Because they actually locate themselves in a particular place they locate themselves with their ideologically minded and affiliated colleagues, and that's where they build the house of God. So synagogue, whether it's a synagogue, or whether it's a Beit Midrash as a house of study, these are institutions that grow out of the notion of the whole public square in diaspora, that's not Jewish. What's Jewish? This place, me and my friends, common purpose, theological destiny, Jewish law and practice. All of the different institutions that we build in Jewish life are the embodiment of this notion of synagogue, people coming together towards common purpose, as opposed to ambient godness. Right? There's no ambient godness in, to use our previous example, Poughkeepsie. So we create little miniature houses of God, houses of study, places of Jewish law and practice. Right? We create these institutions to bottle in, to hold together our ideas, our theology, together with the other members of our community who subscribe to it. That's the core notion of what a synagogue is created to do. But I want to take this one step further with this extraordinary, it's an extraordinary diasporic text that appears within the context of rabbinic literature, and that itself is no small feat. Right? To find within our canonical tradition a celebration of the diasporic model of the synagogue is extraordinary. If you look at the next page, the Mishnah describes, in, a moment, in, in Tractate Sukkah, right, the Mishnah describes an episode that used to take place in the temple in Jerusalem called the Festival of the Water Drawing, the Simchat Beit HaShoeva. What is the Festival of the Water Drawing? Anybody know? A ritual that used to transpire in the temple in Jerusalem on one of the days of Sukkot, in which it seems that they used to dump copious amounts of water all over the temple. What, what, for what purpose might, one, might, might they be doing it? Fall cleaning, right? They don't tell us that it's a fall cleaning, but it essentially must be, partly because Sukkot was a bloodbath in the temple. Of all of the of festivals, Sukkot by far had the most ritual slaughter. I believe it's on the first day of Sukkot, there are 70 cows, right? 70 cows produce an inordinate amount of blood, right? And so the festival of the water drawing, which takes place one of the, one of the intermediate days of Sukkot, involves dumping a tremendous amount of water in the temple, playing music, singing, dancing, and eating, right? A great um, spring clean, fall, fall cleaning party. And the rabbis describe this moment as one of the great days of joy on the Jewish calendar. They said, whosoever did not see the festival of the water drawing, never saw happiness in his lifetime. Right? It was this big, right? If you never saw it, you, this was the embodiment of joy in the Jewish calendar and Jewish tradition. As it is, Sukkot is always described as the holiday of joy, 
And there's a lot of beautiful, poetic, homiletical reasons why Sukkot is imagined as the holiday of joy or happiness. And this was the pinnacle of Sukkot joy. And actually, it's still, it is still lived in practice, right? especially here in Jerusalem. During the intermediate days of Sukkot, there are festivals of the water drawing all over Jerusalem. They don't actually usually involve water anymore, but they are major celebrations. Right? And it's considered kind of the pinnacle of the, of the year in terms of joy. Now, the rabbis pick up on this, um, on, this, on this language of, if you didn't see this, you never saw happiness. They pick up on this theme in the following midrashic teaching about the synagogue of Alexandria. And all they're doing is picking up on the language of, if this, then that. Right? It doesn't actually correlate to the, synagogue, to the synagogue in Alexandria, but if you never saw happiness, you never saw this. It was taught, and this is in the Babylonian Talmud, but it's also in other parallels. Rabbi Yehuda said, Whosoever never saw, if you never saw the double colonnade, which is the technical term for a synagogue. Why is it a technical term for a synagogue? Are you doing any uh, ancient synagogue explorations on your trip here? Temple Emmanuel, none of your two Liam are, are ancient synagogues? Let, let's do one. <laughs> um, the ancient synagogues, all of the archaeology of ancient synagogues, both from the diaspora and from the land of Israel in the first few centuries, have one basic floor plan which is a double column, rows, a double row of columns, right? Column, 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 column. Something happened in the middle, and people sat on the sides. Big debate among historians whether men and women sat together. Won't get into that today, right? But when they say, whosoever never saw a double colonnade, what they mean is an ancient synagogue. If you never saw a double colonnade, if you never saw the one in Alexandria, you did not see the glory of Israel. So you hear the Midrashic language here. They're picking up on the language of if you never had the Simchat Beit HaShoeva, the water drawing, you never experienced joy. If you never saw that synagogue, you never saw the glory of Israel. Now think about how extraordinary this is. It's already a Midrashic teaching about the temple in Jerusalem. Right? You would, you would, there's something deeply subversive here about the contrast between the Alexandrian synagogue and the temple in Jerusalem. Any reader of this text should be looking at it and saying, wait a second, where would I have seen the glory of Israel? In the temple. How can it be that they're describing that a more magnificent or a more glorious building is actually the synagogue in Alexandria? Right? Whosoever never saw Temple Emmanuel in San Francisco never saw glory in their lifetime. Right? An extraordinary, a radical statement embedded within the canonical tradition. What was it? Why was it so great? They said it was like a giant basilica. This text is loaded with Greek words. Um, a giant basilica, a stoa within a stoa, the size of a Greek marketplace within a Greek marketplace. It was this big. It was extraordinary. There were times when there were 600,000 people in it, like, those, like the amount of those who left Egypt. And some say double. And there were 71 gilt chairs corresponding to the 71 members of the great Sanhedrin, each of them worth no less than 210,000 gold talents. It's an extraordinary synagogue, right? In some ways, beyond familiarity, and in some ways, extremely familiar, <laughs> right? It's enormous. It's not just big, but it's metaphorically significant, right? Because here is a synagogue in Egypt that could fit the amount of people who left Egypt. Despite all of the biblical threats and promises, you'll never go back to Egypt, and if you, you know, you'll be punished by being sent back to Egypt. Here's a synagogue in Egypt of diaspora Jews there voluntarily. Diaspora Jews by choice, 
filling up this extraordinary synagogue in Alexandria, possibly even double the amount of Jews who were there at the exodus from Egypt here in the synagogue in Alexandria. And as opposed to the temple in Jerusalem, which had 71 chairs corresponding to the great Sanhedrin, these have those same chairs, but they're much more elaborate. <laughs> right? This just magnificent synagogue with a capital campaign that defies possibility. <laughs> it's just an extraordinary synagogue in Alexandria. And, and here's where now, so now we've given you the visuals of what the synagogue is physically, and now I'm going to say more about it. And there was a wood bima in the middle, and the cantor of the gathering, the chazan hakneset, the chazan, the cantor of the gathering of people, standing on top of the bima with handkerchiefs in his hand. And when it reached the time to answer amen, he would wave his handkerchief. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> uh, and the whole nation would answer amen. In other words, not only is it so big that it has this huge capacity, but people don't know what's going on. Partly, I think, because it's so big, but partly because maybe this text imagines the possibility that showing up in a synagogue is actually more important than participating in the synagogue. Maybe, right? That I'm not going to stand on, but maybe. There's something so deeply familiar about this ancient text, about the Jews. I say that not mockingly. I actually say, because this text is not mocking the Jews of Alexandria, it's not mocking the synagogues. Remember, it's describing this as the glory of Israel. The notion that Jews would come together to one institution to share collectively in the experience of that institution without necessarily having the familiarity to know what's actually going on. Right? For all that diaspora Jews build magnificent, glorious synagogues, there also sometimes you hear this in liberal Jewish circles, this kind of self-hatred of the silliness of the synagogues that we have, or the, or the literacy problem. You hear this a lot. Like, you know, the big problem with American Jews is literacy. If only we had American Jews, you know, knew more Hebrew or understood more Hebrew. This doesn't, there's, no, there's none of that in this text. The problem here, you know, you have this, it's like a perfect model. If only they had a microphone, but in, in lieu of a microphone, he stands on there with, with handkerchiefs. I mean, it's 1.2 million people, so you have to actually have a, a far distance to be able to see. He waves the handkerchief, and everybody says amen. And this is a celebration of this paradigmatic Alexandrian synagogue. And then the text takes a surprising direction. And they would not sit mixed, not what you think, they would not sit mixed, but goldsmiths by themselves, and silversmiths by themselves, and glassblowers by themselves. And when a pauper would enter, he would recognize his fellow skilled men and head there. And from, with, from there, his sustenance and that of his household would come. What's the last piece of this text? It's extraordinary. What? Business, or put differently, tzedakah and community. The synagogue is designed not just as the gathering place that models the glory of Israel, not just as a kind of super temple, right, because it's brought directly in contrast to the temple, but as the archetype of social justice. How do you build a community? Create a circumstance by which everyone who comes into that community is actually able to make a living, right? You know, this, what, I mean, the text also takes for granted that you talk in shul, <laughs> um, right? <laughs> Because you, right, you sit with your fellow work people. And what's interesting about it is in many communities, you would imagine that, this, that this, you would want the reverse to happen. If you're the, the guild of goldsmiths in this community, the last thing you want to have happen is another guy move in who's a goldsmith. Right? And yet, this text imagines a perfectly socially just community 
in which someone who enters and needs to make a living is brought into the community, right? Is brought into a living by being with the other people who make similar livings, right? That, that, that the synagogue becomes both a site of the majesty of place, right? The Jewish collective as embodied within four walls of a synagogue. Right? That in and of itself is enough of an idea for what, a, um, what the ethical aspiration of a diaspora synagogue can be, or a diaspora Jewish community, that we build the four, a magnificent four walls to house God, to house ourselves, to house our community. But not just that, that the whole premise of the institution is to actually bring about a socially just reality for the members of our community. This is the ethical aspiration towards how the rabbis understand, or how our tradition understands, what what peoplehood, what collectivity in diaspora is supposed to be about. How do we build institutions that hold together our people in a place in which we don't ostensibly otherwise belong? How does those institutions hold us together? And what responsibility does it then embody for ourselves in those institutions towards each other? It's a perfect picture of peoplehood in diaspora. This is the institution that holds us. And because we're all in that one place, what debt and obligation do we have to the others who enter into our peoplehood? So, look, we're, I want to do the public square thing and then return to that question. But think about contemporary Jews and the, thi the very idea that American Jews love about Israel and the very idea that many Israeli Jews love about coming and live in America. And it's exactly, exactly modeled here. Right? American Jews tend to love ambient Judaism in Israel. It's like, you know, Friday afternoon, the, watching the country scurry around, especially, well, especially perhaps only in Jerusalem, but especially in Jerusalem, that sense of ambient Shabbat is coming, the slow down, right, all of that kind of public square Judaism. You know, first time people come to Israel and they see Hebrew idioms that they recognize from Judaism or from Hebrew school as part of the cultural vocabulary of the country, there's that kind of sense of, yes, this is Judaism lived out loud. And yet you oftentimes find with Israelis that that's exactly the thing that drives them crazy about Israel, of how come my Judaism is so wrapped up in everything that I want to do? Where could I find a box for my Judaism? So it's oftentimes the case that Israeli Jews who connect to American Jewish institutions, who come and live for a few years, find it enthralling that there's a box for their Judaism, right? That they can come to a synagogue. And this is the Israeli author Ruth Calderon, who lived in America for a number of years. You know, part of one of the original research fellows actually here at the Institute, but now has founded a number of Batei Midrash in Israel. Came to America, wrote a blog for several years living in New Jersey about how much she loved Jewish institutions. Now, you have to be an Israeli to love American Jewish institutions, right? <laughs> to see like, ah, I can go to this place and connect to the people in the context of the people. But not everything, right? Not everything out in the street is, is like, is choking me with my Jewishness. And this is the civil marriage debate in Israel. How could you create for Israelis that sense of where's the box for my Jewishness? So this, this model of diaspora as synagogue is a way of saying, here's diaspora Jews imagine peoplehood by creating boxes for it. And then once you've created the boxes, how do you make that box extraordinary? How do you make it ambitious? How do you use it as a platform for advancing your values in the most aspirational sense? Let's go on into the second, the second piece of this, the public square, and then I'd I really would like to have this kind of contemporary conversation, which I think um, is percolating. So if the first half of this class is to say <coughs> that, uh, the, that the synagogue is the model of the diaspora public square, right? <laughs> what is the actual public square? 
What is it, how do you bring Jewish values in, when, when you're talking about actually living within the context of the land of Israel? How does it get tested out? And the basic model is to think about, I want to give three case studies for what it means for Jewish values in the public square where there's a different kind of skin in the game. This is basically to pick up on the thematic of Aleph Bet Yehoshua, but without the polemic. Right? Aleph Bet Yehoshua is not wrong in the sense that there is something ambient, right? And this is what Eric's question was about. There's something ambient about Judaism lived aloud in the public square that entails a whole broad, of, a whole broad set of connections to identity political reality, economic reality, the choices a Jewish country or Jewish state has to make are the way in which the Jewish collective tests out its ideas when it's all in one place. When it's a Jewish country, how do Jewish values come to bear on that country? And I want to take three different examples, all of which should have some sort of contemporary resonance for some of the issues that actually the State of Israel wrestles with today. The first is a Mishnah from Gittin. I'm going to start with a second line. Captives when a Jew is taken captive, should not be redeemed for more than their value to prevent abuses. Right? If someone is taken prisoner, someone is kidnapped, they should not be redeemed for more than the value of the person to prevent the abuses. What are the abuses? More kidnappings. Anybody want to look at the Hebrew phrase here in the second line? Mipnei tikkun ha'olam. The reason not to redeem captives for more than their value, which gets translated as to prevent abuses, is tikkun olam, the anthem of American Judaism. Right? But social justice, not just in the sense of repairing the world more broadly, but making sure that the world in which we currently live doesn't get broken. It's extremely hard to not think of Gilad Shalit in reading a sentence like this. And at the same time, it's extremely hard to talk about Gilad Shalit in the context of something like this without sounding in one way or another judgmental, right? About the, tr about the, the devil's bargain that Israeli society, and in particular the Israeli prime minister, has to make when evaluating the relative merit of an individual who is uh, taken captive from within the society compared to the peoplehood, right? This is a peoplehood choice. How much is an individual valued? And how much do we take responsibility for what else is going to happen to the rest of us should we make that trade? What's more than their value, the mission doesn't tell us. Is it one soldier for 100 Palestinian prisoners? Is it one for 1,000? Which of these is tikkun olam? But it's a question that only exists in the context of a Jewish public square. Because what happens is you take this as a Jewish value or a Jewish idea and apply it to actually living these values out loud. I, a, a literally a devil's bargain. But, you're in, you're, but now you're in a Jewish, when, when the state of Israel does it, does it right, in a sense, you're in a Jewish values conversation. You're in this Jewish, in this Jewish conversation of how does tikkun olam inform the building of a Jewish society in valuing the relative merits of an individual versus the collective. To go on, captives should also not be helped to escape to prevent abuses. Same problem, right? If you actually try to, to, make some, try to free somebody, right, are you, are you risking the captives who are actually being captured? Right? This is what happened with Nachshon Waxman in 1994. Nachshon Waxman was a kidnapped soldier. The Israeli government went in to take him out. They didn't calculate that there was a steel wall, a steel door, rather than a regular door. By the time they broke in, he had been killed. 
This is, this is that Jewish values conversation as applied to the public conversation. In the public square, how do you evaluate what's good for the individual versus what's good for the collective in determining precedent for, his, for, for Jewish policy around these questions with which Israelis live? Um, okay, so one model when we think about how Jewish values are played out in the public square, is thinking about the question of the relative merits of the individual in the public square versus the rest of the collective in the public square. And you have to know, as much as there is a tremendous amount of rallying around Gilad Shalit, I would suspect that for many, even the most vehement supporters of doing whatever needs to happen to get Gilad Shalit out, there is a nagging sense of what happens when my kid's in the army. What would I want the Israeli government to do in order to, to protect my own children? So this is a, a personal and collective question that's being played out in very contemporary ways. And we have Jewish values language that helps us think about what it means to bring Jewish values to the public square. A second question, what are the rights and responsibilities that come with belonging to a, Jewish, a Jewishly determined society? And for this, I want to look at a little bit more of an obscure text. And this is the Mishnah here in Baba Batra the second source on page five. A resident of a courtyard may be compelled by the rest of the residents of the courtyard to contribute to the building of a porter's lodge and a door for the courtyard. Rabbi Shimbom Ben Gamliel says, however, not all courtyards require a porter's lodge. A resident of a city may be compelled to contribute to the building of a wall, folding doors, and a crossbar. Rabbi Shimbom Ben Gamliel says, not all towns require a wall. How long must a man reside in a town to be counted as one of the townsmen? 12 months. If, however, he buys a house there, he is at once recognized as one of the townsmen. So let's separate out the two aspects of this Mishnah. Right, the first half of the Mishnah, on what can you compel as the members of a society to the people who belong to your society in terms of their social participation, or actually in terms of their fiscal participation. Right? If you're a member of a courtyard, Right? And Jewish values, to, to just pull this together, and Jewish values are what determines your belonging to that courtyard, what can we make you do? Right? And this is a classic question of what are the responsibilities that come with belonging to a society. Now, you could map this to the synagogue, because right? you could ask, based on the model of the synagogue, what can the synagogue demand of you? But it really comes, this is a rubber meets the road question of if you belong to a Jewish society in, that, that's a non-member driven society, right? Because that's what belonging to a society is that you're not actually, there's no membership in, in a society. It's everybody. That's social responsibility. Nevertheless, what can I demand of you? If you move into a car, courtyard, if you move into a city, what are we allowed to demand of you? And here there's, the, the, the technical language is financial, but of course, the broader language is what other commitments are we are we are required to make of you? And again, there are contemporary examples for this in the context of the state of Israel. If you belong to the Jewish society in the land of Israel, what is the state of Israel allowed to ask of you? The army, for instance, is the thing that comes most readily to mind. And it's a clearly an issue that is at a source of a major debate within Israeli society. Can you be a member of Jewish society within the land of Israel and be exonerated from military duty? The current answer is what? Yes. I believe that it's something along the lines of now, and again, you know, 70% of statistics are made up on the spot, so um, I would say, um, I, I, think, I, think, I think the statistic that I've, that I've heard, at least most recently, is approximately half of all eligible Israeli citizen 
18-year-olds uh, do not currently serve in the Army? Approximately half. Right? So on one hand, a combination of national service being Haredi or being Israeli-Arab or being physically non-equipped or emotionally unequipped to serve in the Army. So a huge amount of people are released from military duty because of all of those reasons. Right? <clears throat> so on one hand, the building of an aspirational Jewish society right, requires responsibilities of belonging. On the other hand, how forcefully can a Jewish society demand, using the language of Jewish values, your participation within the context of that society? And the Mishnah has one very technical answer, and even in the Mishnah, right, the rabbis disagree. Well, not all towns require a wall, not all courtyards require a porter's lodge, and you get, this, is, this becomes a Jewish values conversation, not as much determinatively. It's not that the mission is telling us exactly this is how it's supposed to play out, but it is saying this is the tools to have a Jewish values conversation about the responsibilities of the public square. Use this language. Help us to define what's the responsibilities of belonging to a society. The flip side is the rights conversation. Right? The last part of the Mishnah, how long must a person be counted, how long do you have to live in a place to be counted as one of the people? This is no longer about responsibilities, it's now about rights. Right? You get 12 months free. Right? You're free ostensibly of the responsibility, and you're also kind of being tested about whether you actually belong. If, however, you put your skin in the game, right? you get a mortgage, you buy a house, immediately, you have the rights of anyone else who's part of that town. Right? This is the notion of the right of return. You can be a tourist as much as you like. You don't actually have rights and responsibilities within Israel. You have the right to acquire rights. Right? Virtually, I would suspect anyone in this room, although it's getting more complicated with what you'd have to do to document yourself as Jewish, right? but virtually everyone in this room could walk to Israel and say, I want to be one of the townspeople. Right? And even in Israeli society, you get quite a long stretch of time with special rights as an immigrant. Right? You, get to, you, know, you get to buy a car more cheaply, you get to bring in appliances. Right? You're off the hook for a certain period of time. But once you actually commit and put your feet down here, you become a member of the society, and that comes with <coughs> the attendant rights and responsibilities. And buying a house Planting yourself here is how you acquire a place within the peoplehood society of Judaism in Israel. So the first model we looked at was the individual balanced against the rights of the collective. The second was the individual becoming part of a collective and what rights and responsibilities are born thereof. Third, I want to look at what, what responsibilities does the society have to its individuals. And this is a, a, an, a little bit of an intense text. Text comes from Deuteronomy. And it's one of the more strange rituals that appears in the Hebrew Bible. Really a bizarre ritual that takes place in the book of Deuteronomy, which is ostensibly about the problem of justice when there is no knowledge. How do I carry out justice when I don't actually know? How do I carry out justice when I can't actually determine what happened in a problematic legal case? It's a very, very bizarre ritual that transpires in the book of Deuteronomy. If a person is found slain in the land, parenthetically, but an extremely important parenthetical, because that's why it belongs in this section, in the land which your Lord, your God, has given you to possess. Right? This is a law that's conditional on, becoming, on going into the land of Israel. This is not just a, an arbitrary jurisprudential law that applies to Jewish societies everywhere. This is specifically conditional on how do you work out this problem within the context of a Jewish public space. 
So now, you've come into the land, and someone is found dead, lying in the field, and it is not known who slain him. Then your elders and your judges shall come forth, and measure the distance to the cities which are around him who is slain, and it shall be that the city which is nearest to the slain man, the elders of that city, shall take a heifer, which has not been worked with, and which has not been pulled in the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer to a rough ravine, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the ravine. Actually, I don't think it's really strike off his head. I think it's break its neck, but okay, fine. Um, and the priests, the son of Levi, shall come near. For them the Lord your God has chosen to minister him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word shall every controversy and every assault be tried. And all the elders of that city, which is nearest to the slain man, shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. And then they pray, Be merciful, O Lord, to your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And lay not innocent blood to your people of Israel's charge. And the blood shall be forgiven them. So shall you put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you. And when you shall do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. Extremely bizarre ritual. Right? A A dead body is found in the field of a Jewish public space. Again, extremely important that this is in the context of a Jewish public space. Because what happens if a body is found in the field of a non-Jewish public space? Not our problem, (laughs) right? We don't bear the responsibility for everything that happens in our midst, but the key feature of this text is that sense of we bear responsibility for everything that happens, even the things we don't know anything about. When you're in a context of a Jewish public space, the absence of data does does not absolve you from responsibility. Right? Ignorance of what happens doesn't excuse you. Right? You don't get to say when you run a state or you run a society, you know what, Jewish values run out over here. I don't know what happened, not my problem. In this moment, the Jewish values as determined by Torah say, actually, in some sense, it is your problem, and I need to craft a ritual to create some sense of absolving you from responsibility in that moment. So what do you do? You go to an unsown field, and you break the neck of a cow. Ask me theologically why this works, I don't know, right? I don't know why it is, and we could come up with some homiletical reasons of why breaking the neck of, an un, of, a, of a cow that's never worked is comparable, right? It's an analogy to a dead body that nobody has any sense of responsibility for, right? That somehow this is, it's just a waste. It feels like a waste. Nobody knows who the dead body is, and nobody knows what happens, and so much do we not know what actually happens that we have to measure the distance from one city to another to figure out which city is actually more responsible than the other, right? If it's halfway between these two places, right, who was this Petach Tikva's responsibility or was it Ramat HaSharon's? So let's figure out which one is responsible. The elders come out and then they do this extraordinary ritual. They wash their hands of it, right? This is, right, this is the Gospels, right? The Gospel, everything in the Gospels is Midrash. Right? When Pontius Pilate washes his hands over the blood of the blood of Jesus and says, I wash my hands of this guilt, I absolve myself of it, it's this. Right? There's a dead body, and he, they literally wash their hands of the guilt. And they say, we didn't do it, you know, and therefore, don't hold us accountable. What's the theory underlying, the underlying why they have to wash their hands and, their, and, and, and absolve, absolve themselves of accountability? Of course they're accountable. It's their town. 
the town and the leadership in particular of a town within the context of a Jewish public space bears responsibility for things that go wrong within the context of that town. Now, what's the most, one of the most extraordinary modern texts on this is that this is the text that the Khan Commission, after the Sabra and Shatila massacre in Lebanon in 1982, used to discuss Israel's responsibility for it. It's one of the most astonishing modern Jewish texts. Because what happened to the Sabra Shatila, according to the Israeli government, right, is Israel withdrew its troops from, uh, from southern Lebanon, and in the withdrawal of the troops, there was a massacre that then transpired um, in places that Israel had previously been in control. And they knew it would happen. Or, well, that's the machloket, right? That's the debate. What did they expect would happen? In the Khan Commission, the Khan Commission first goes through all of the Asks all of the features of international law, exploring um, what, is in, what is indirect responsibility. Should Israel be held responsible for something, that could, for something that they might have been able to anticipate? And in Israeli canonical law, in a con commission produced by the Israeli government, the first argument says, by international legal standards, Israel is not responsible for what happened. However, and they quote this paragraph in Deuteronomy, and they say, there are circumstances in which a Jewish state, if we're going by Jewish values, creates a sense of indirect responsibility, and we need to do some sort of cleansing ritual to say, if we bear some responsibility for the public square that we control, do we then bear responsibility for the massacres that transpire within? It's actually, a, you know, for all of the catastrophe of that moment, it's a beautiful moment in the exercise of Jewish values in the public square as a peoplehood moment. We, as a people, bear responsibility for what happens within this land, and oftentimes within what happens in the land that we control. Right? And this is a, obviously an ongoing question. What, which, which are the Jewish public spaces within the context of the whole of where Israel is currently situated? Right? What responsibility do Jews have as a peoplehood for places that they are occupying, inhabiting, settling, living in? And it's a double-edged sword, because the more that you talk about Jewish possession and ownership of even the West Bank, let's say, the more you talk about the, the responsibility of Jewish values to govern those places. Right? If the government is willing to take responsibility in a moment of nobody wanted to occupy Lebanon, but even in that place there was a willingness to say Jewish values have to govern the places that we're occupying, right? all the more so in places that you willfully want to occupy. So this is a huge conversation for Israel. But to just ramp it up even further, in the last, the, 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 rabbinic, the rabbinic text on this, right, the, the, the Gemara on this, asks an incredible question. They, he, now they're quoting from Deuteronomy, this is the last text on page six. They, that is the, the sages, remember the elders of the town, then declare, our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. The rabbis ask the obvious question. Of course they didn't. If they actually were responsible, right, they're, they're culpable. How can it enter our minds that the court of justice would have shed this blood? Rather, he did not come to us for help, and we dismissed him without supplying him with food. We did not see him, and we let him go without an escort. It's extraordinary. So the extent that we, we look, looked at the synagogue, and the, the whole synagogue text ends as a paradigm of social justice, right? This is the institution we build. The rabbis here say, 
the, the state in and of itself, the Jewish society, the public square, is also supposed to be a beacon for social justice and responsibility. And so high is the standard of social responsibility that even for a stranger who never came to us to ask for help, we bear some responsibility for the outcome that happens to that person. It's actually a mind-boggling text. Right? This isn't just about a jurisprudential problem. Somebody died in a field, and we didn't know about it, right? and we didn't know who to hold responsible, so we make responsible an innocent cow. Right? That's one way to read the Deuteronomy text. But the Gemara actually takes it way farther than that. It's not just a jurisprudential problem, it's a social justice problem. Here was a person, and we failed to take responsibility for this person, even without knowing that the person needed help. A person who's lying in the field is an embarrassment to a Jewish public society. Right? A poor person in the street is an embarrassment to a Jewish public society. So the challenge that comes with when you imagine, if you want to think of land connected to peoplehood, and the state model, the public square model, is a means by which peoplehood is in practice, it challenges us enormously. What does Israel have to do to live up to the Jewish values that define the public square? Much as we imagine, what do our synagogues have to do to live up to the social just model that's imagined by the Talmud here in thinking about the Jewish public square? I want to just, um, you know, I said earlier, and I want to return to it now, because if we have these two different conceptual models from Jewish tradition in thinking about Jewish values as they express collectivity, in diaspora as the synagogue model, in, in land of Israel as the public square model. One of the things we see is that, I mentioned this earlier, that this is the things that seems to be that Jews envy about one another in Israel and in diaspora. Right? The fan for Jews who come to Israel, it, it's the fantasy of Judaism in the public square. Look at the kosher restaurants. Right? It's, like, um, it's, it's playing out a kind of fantasy of what it is to live in the context of Jewish values. Right? For Israelis, there is that suffocation, for many Israelis, a suffocation of free me from how these Jewish values are constricting the personal choices I wanted to make. Now, in one sense, <coughs> we could stop here, but it really is important to start thinking about how do these intersect with each other and how do they feed on each other. And one of the big questions and challenges that I want us to think about is how much should these feed each other? In other words, how much should Israel embody these diasporic ideas of peoplehood in its synagogues? And how much should diaspora Jews start embodying these public square questions? And how much do we have to yield? That's a really important question for diaspora Jews to think about in particular. How much do we have to yield about the Jewishness that's defined by our ideologically created little bodies and say, we don't get to determine what the Jewish values are for the public square because our Jewish values are created in our little bubbles. Do we get the choice to define that public conversation? I think it's a really important challenge for diaspora Jews to think about. Um, in contrast, perhaps, and I, I apologize in advance to Wes about this, right? Um, perhaps the problem with shuls is not shul politics, right? Maybe shul politics are actually okay, right? Because what shul politics, if they are value-driven shul politics, they are main, the, main, the means by which we're trying to express our values in the articulation of what our peoplehood should consist of. Right? That w these synagogues or institutions or JCCs or whatever they are, right, are the places where we put our peoplehood. Right? We care about these institutions because they're supposed to be the articulation of our values. So the politics around their institutions may not be the problem if they're driven by how do we make these institutions the site of ethics and values. 
The last piece I would say, and this is a real challenge, is what happens to, to Jewish communities in Israel and in diaspora when these models start to break down? Right? I, look, I think the, major, the mainstream diaspora Jewish community is still an institutional Jewish community. We basically know this to be true, and it's certainly true in Jews of, of our demographic, broadly speaking. But it's shifting. And what's going to happen when Jews, younger Jews, are no longer thinking in institutional terms? And you see this starting to play out of my politics are public square politics more than they are my little institutional politics. It's a big question for diaspora Jewry in thinking about if our model for peoplehood is the institutions that we create to house our values, what's going to happen when those institutions begin to break down? I want to lastly conclude with um, one of the ways in which this was played out most recently in the public square in America about 30 years ago. Um, and I learned this from a colleague of mine in our North American Scholar Circle, Professor Eliyahu Stern, who's at Yale. Uh, there's an incredible exchange of letters that takes place between the Lubavitcher Rebbe in the early 1970s and the person who was the, uh, the head of, of institutional reform Judaism in the 1970s, in which the, the letters come from the head of reform Judaism to the Lubavitcher Rebbe to say, stop putting menorahs in public parks. Right? Why? You're jeopardizing the, social, the implicit social contract that we as American Jews have with the public square. We, wanna th we, we thrive as American Jews in particular by the virtue of the fact that, that this unique public square that America created is a non-religious public square. And it enables us to have our institutions of Judaism unthreatened by the public conversation. This is the unique experience of American Jewry. So don't threaten us by putting, but when you're breaking down the neutrality of the public square by putting a menorah in it, you're screwing it up for us. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe has an incredible answer to this, in which he says, maybe you're right, but people like it. <laughs> it's a non-ideological, it's fantastic. He says, it's a non-ideological argument. He responds and says, if you had written to me before we started doing it, I might have taken your argument seriously. But we started doing it, and they love it. So what am I to argue with the fact that people like this? Embedded in that, right, is this question of mission drift, right? For dia dia mission drift, right? For diaspora Jews, especially embodied in this law, in this, in the letter of the Reform Rabbi, it's this is the, these institutions are our vision of collectivity and peoplehood, and when you put it in the public square, you jeopardize both the institutions and the social contract that the institutions have with the diaspora public square, right? And the answer is, people like it. So does, is that a risk for diaspora Jewry? And the same is true for Israeli Jewry, right? When you see the move, and this is in the news today, right, of how to create models of civil marriage within Israel, right? There's one answer, a very politically and polemic answer, is that that's, you know, problematic. Like the religious answer is that's problematic because you want to preserve kind of the state's monopoly over Jewish values there. But there's also a liberal way to find that those civil marriage is problematic because you're yielding on the notion that Jewish values have something different to say about the public square than the Haredi model. Is it possible to be opposed to civil marriage in Israel, not because you're a fundamentalist, but because you want to find new ways to surface Jewish values differently into a public conversation? Because that's a really interesting direction to go in. Right? It's not, I don't, because I don't think it's automatically the case, and so I'll push you on this, 
I don't think it's automatically the case that diaspora Jews should look at Israel and say, be more like us. Right? The diaspora Jews are looking at their own realities of the institutions that create, in which we create our pockets of peoplehood. What is it for us to look at Israel and say, your peoplehood experience is fundamentally different, and perhaps we want to help you along with the Jewish values that define your peoplehood, but perhaps the experience itself should stand on its own. The question was, should we no longer look for pluralism in Israel? I would take it rever the reverse should be true. If pluralism is a true Jewish value, how do we work to advance the Jewish values that we believe in in Israel? Whereas it might be, one of the problematic assumptions of liberal activism with respect to Israel is that the causes we're trying to push forward are opposed to the Jewish state. What if you were able to say, no, 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 these are Jewish values that could help the Jewish state? Right? That's the radical move here. The question is, when you are building a Jewish society, you ha when you talk about building a Jewish society, you have, a, you have a, a menu of options of what are the Jewish values that are going to define that Jewish public space. Um, one of my colleagues, and who's, uh, Misha Elzion, who many of you studied with yesterday, he has this very powerful line around this, right? How many times does it talk about Shabbat in the Torah? Times, how many times does it talk about Shabbat in the Torah? Five, six, seven? How many times does it talk about um, you know, taking care of the widow and the orphan and the poor in your midst? like 36 or 37 times. And when you talk about which are the most prominent Jewish values or Jewish vocabulary that people tend to talk about, you hear much more about Shabbat than you hear about taking care of the orphan and the widow. So if you have a menu of options for a Jewish public square of which values are gonna define that public square, make that the value. Look how many rabbinic traditions talk about, you know, and Daniel talked about this last night. Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. These two, both these and these are the living words of God. Right? That's a pluralist model for a, a Jewish values piece that could model what a Jewish society looks like. So what I don't want us to do is to get to a place where we say, I want my liberal values to define a Jewish state as opposed to the Jewish values. If anything, what I want to do is to say, my liberal values are Jewish values, and they can help create a Jewish. I don't want to weigh in uh, on the validity of, of anyone's particular choices. What I want to put forward is that they are very different propositions when it comes to Israel and when it comes to the diaspora, and we should be aware of the choices that are involved. Right? I, so I don't have a problem with a rabbi who says, I want to bring Jewish values into a political party in the state of Israel. I don't have a principled problem with it. It's actually the natural continu continuation of the platform that we talked about today. The notion that Jewish values should define a Jewish public square, I'm with you. I may disagree with you about which Jewish values you're choosing to, to help define that public square. But there is a possibility, even in a theocracy, right, for it to be an expression of our values. If the theocracy itself isn't necessarily the problem, as long the problem is, does it actually map the values that we're trying to build? For diaspora Jews, it's a very different proposition. Right? And that's the example of the Lubavitcher Rebbe and the Reform Rabbi, is to what extent do people feel as though by using Jewish values to help define the public square, you're actually jeopardizing the unique state of affairs for Jews. More than anything, I'm not going to weigh on this. Um, more than anything, this is going to be tested by the extent to which American Jews allow support for Israel to become a partisan political issue. Right? The more it becomes a partisan political issue, the more you lose that potential for this to be a broad, for there to be a broad consensus among Jews about their basic value commitments. That's a, it's a big, it's, 
I think for, for me that was the subtext of the whole Netanyahu Obama spat and the way in which he was then received in Congress was the big question of are American Jews allowing their values in the public square to define their political, their Jewish values in the public square to define their political commitments in a way that's actually going to be a risk for Jewish political power. You have been listening to Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Subscribe to this podcast to be notified of more lectures from Shalom Hartman Institute. For information about the Hartman Institute and our courses in North America and Israel, go to hartman.org.il. The Hartman Institute podcast is produced by Tony Jason. Music by Kevin McLeod. I'm Alan Abbey. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next time.